Radio. Finding the love that satisfies. A talk by Simon Carrington, given at the Restore Weekend in Hobart, Tasmania. Thank you very much, uh, um, Jamil. Um, here is one person that is absolutely changing the world, eh? She's awesome. Jamil West is great. Uh, we, we actually met at um, university um, together and she saw I was kind of into this, you know, uh, uh, theology of the body and stuff and we instantly became friends and started chatting, so that was fun. Um, we're, we're very, very excited to be in Tasmania. I want to thank you, Jamil, for organising this with uh, Tom and especially Bishop Porteous. Thank you very much for having us here. This is awesome. So this is the furthest we've uh, actually travelled uh, to speak and we're, we're extremely excited. There's nowhere further to go, is there? This is, this, this is, this is as far as I can travel. So no, very, very excited to be here. Um, well, I want to start with a short prayer and then we'll get into the talk in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful and enkindle them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, O Lord, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. St. John Paul the Great. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That's awesome. You're one of the only groups that have ever actually finished the prayer. That's, that's exciting. So, to start off with, I want to share a quick story. When I was serving as a youth minister at a parish um, back in Sydney for a few years, uh, one of the things that we used to do is we would go and, and we would uh, visit the elderly in, in like a nursing home. And um, obviously, you know, when you're visiting the elderly at the nursing home, we often think, oh, I'm going to be giving something to them. You know, they may not have many visitors, and so we're doing an act of love. Hello. We're doing an act of love and service to them. And I, as I walked in, immediately this, this elderly couple in the back right corner caught my eye. And I saw this, I saw the husband there, and he had a, he had a bowl of food, and he was feeding his wife, and didn't look like his wife was kind of doing much or talking much, and he was kind of wiping her mouth uh, after every spoonful. And... I said hello to a few of the elderly people. I, you know, I, I started visiting around, but I couldn't. I was like, oh, I've got to go and talk to this man. Something just drew me to him. And I went and I sat, I sat next to him and I introduced myself and um, his name was Antun. And uh, Antun started sharing with me, um, you know, about his life and his marriage. And he said that he, he had been married for 53 years to his wife. And after 25 years of their marriage, she suffered a stroke. And after this stroke, she'd been unable to speak ever since. He said, I've been, with the last 28 years of my marriage, I've not heard a word from my wife. And he said, only three years ago, she had a second stroke, which was much worse than the first. And now she has absolutely no memory of who I am. And she has completely lost her mind. And I remember as he's sharing this story, and he said, for the last 28 years, He'd also had to shower her, feed her. Um, it would take him half an hour to move her to and from the car, uh, taking her to church and everything. Would, would, it would be like a three-hour round trip. And for those of you that may, ha- may have to take care of your, your grandparents or elderly, you know, we understand this. And I remember just being in tears. If you get to know me, I'm, I'm a real softie, right? And I'm sitting there and I'm talking to Antoine and I'm absolutely in tears. And if I was to say, like, why was I crying? I think it was because I'd... I was pierced by just authentic love 
the love in this man's eyes. And while he's talking to me, he would just time it perfectly. He'd wipe her mouth and just know exactly how to care for his wife. And it totally blew me away. Just overwhelming love. And what I think Antun taught me that day was he, he really blew this myth out of the wall. Now I know it's a myth that love is give and take. You know, like many of us grow up believing a relationship is 50-50. You know, I give knowing that I'm going to get in return. And Antoine proved that love is 100% give. It doesn't look at what you're getting back. Love doesn't count scores. It doesn't, um, it doesn't count offenses, right? And we know that from Scripture, right? It doesn't, it doesn't count. It's totally I give myself to you regardless of what you can give back or what you do give back. And that really inspired me. And I think for every man in in the room today, something in us stirs when we hear this. We want to be able to love our bride this way. We want to be able to lay our life down and give ourselves 100% for the person that we love. And for every woman in the room, you know, this, this pulls on your heartstrings in the same way. How awesome would it be to know that a man would love you enough that even if you couldn't speak for 28 years, he's not going to leave your side. What would our society say about Antun? Mate, you've got to cut that ball and chain off your leg. She wouldn't even know if you, if you left or stayed. I mean, why is it that we see so few examples you know, like this, of this kind of love? I think it's because our society encourages unfaithfulness. You know, it's like if you're, you're, you're 10 years old and you haven't got a boyfriend or girlfriend yet, you know, you're 13 and you haven't kissed a boy, like what's going on? You're 16 and, you, and you're still a virgin, like what's wrong with you? You know, you're engaged and you're not living with your fiancé, like what's wrong with you? Like something seriously wrong, right? And I think, you know, we hear this all the time and there's this, there's this encouragement to be unfaithful. And if we're faithful, it's kind of frowned upon as you're not truly free, you're a slave to the person you love, but we know that authentic love is authentic freedom because Antun was there because he chose to be there. He chose to be faithful to his wedding vows. He wouldn't consider himself a slave. The authentic love, the true love he had for his bride had compelled him to choose, no, no, I want to be here and I want to serve. It was totally coming from his heart. And I think, you know, that as, as we can see, right, we look at society today and we look at um, this encouragement to be unfaithful. We know that about 50% of marriages today end in divorce, okay, could be a little bit higher now. But uh, I recently heard of a stat that's even sadder than that, unfortunately, and there was a survey done in America, um, about 2,000 uh, married couples from the States. They were asked a simple question, are you happy in your marriage? Now, everything that we do, right, we do it because we hope it's going to make us happy, right? That's, we all want to be happy. We, we, we want to be thriving, okay, not just surviving. We want to have an, an awesome, happy life. All of us would hope to get married because we think it's going to make us happy. We're going to find love, authentic love. Only 12% of the couples reported they were actually happy in their marriage, now, for me, I think that's, that's even, that in some ways, that's even worse, right, than that uh, 50% divorce rate because, I mean, I, I mean, it's awesome that they're being faithful to their wedding vows. That's great, okay, or that they're sticking it out for the kids. But none of us want a marriage like that. None of us want to say, I'm not even happy in my marriage. I'm just, you know, I just, you know, don't want to don't leave or I know I want to be faithful to my wedding vows. But we, we want to be married to our best friend, 
We want an awesome, intimate relationship uh, with our best friend who is our spouse. I know I certainly want that. So how can we how can we beat these odds? I mean, you might be saying, Simon, you're engaged and you know these stats. You must be nuts, right? Why would you still be getting married if you actually knew these stats? And I think, well, I think if if we really look at at the way we've been brought up, the way we've been raised, a society uh, has encouraged us to live out relationships. I think we can point to I think a key ingredient that is the real difference, not just between a marriage that ends and a marriage that that stays together. But a marriage is not just good, but that's great, an awesome marriage. What is the difference between marriages that end or just surviving together and a marriage that is thriving and is amazing and is producing good fruit, not just within the family but in society? And I think, and you're probably all familiar with these terms, but I really do think the difference is, is, is love and lust. Okay, love and lust okay, are the only two ways that we can form habits with our sexuality. What is love? Well, I think Antun gave us the best example we can think of, right? Love is I give myself to you 100% and everything I do is devoted to your good, about pleasing you and honouring you and respecting you. Love is you see yourself totally as a gift to be given away in love, to be received in love. There's nothing self-seeking in love. Lust flips love totally on its head and lust sees another not as a gift to be received or to give yourself to, but lust sees a person as an object or as a means to happiness or as a means to be end, as a means to an end that we can use to satisfy our own pleasures or desires and it can be in many different forms. It doesn't have to just be related to our sexuality. We can use people for multiple, multiple different things. But when we're speaking about lust, we're particularly talking about um, in the area of our sexuality. So we have two choices. We can become people of virtue when it comes to our sexuality or people of vice, which is a bad habit. You can be a sexually virtuous or a sexually vicious person. Okay? Sexual, sexually virtuous or sexually vicious. A sexually virtuous person is someone that has made a habit of loving when it comes to, to their sexuality. A sexually vicious person is someone that always looks at every, not just the person you're in a relationship with, but any person as a means to an end. And for me, I remember um, as well, one of the things that I really struggled with as a teenager uh, I, I went through a really tough patch in my particularly mid to late teen years where I was very confused about what God's plan for sexuality was. What do you actually want me to do with my sexuality? I understood it as God had given me uh, all these desires for sexual intimacy and for love, but it seemed like at the same time he placed all these rules around what I could do with these desires so what happens when you've got all, all these desires for things that you think are going to make you happy, but someone is preventing you <clears throat> from realizing those very same desires? You start to hate that person or that thing because you feel this is what I need to express or live out in order to be happy, and this person or this institution right, is preventing me from achieving this happiness. And so as a late teenager, I began to be- get very angry with God. 
very confused. Why would he do this? Why would he give me all these, uh, all these desires for sexual intimacy, but then try and restrict me from actually realizing them or achieving them? And I really felt like, okay, I was a slave. I felt like I was a slave to, to the church. I, like I had to obey the rules because I wanted to be a good person, but um, deep down I wasn't happy. And I won't get too into my testimony. We haven't got time for all that tonight. But basically, I began to get very involved with with, um, personal sexual sin, especially internet pornography. And I, I I started to express these desires in the hope that it was going to satisfy, you know, these desires that I had for love and and affection and, and communion. And what was sad was that I was actually emptier while I was watching pornography and involved in, in the different sin relating to sexuality that I was that I was in than when I was free from those sins. I was actually a lot emptier and a lot more unhappy. I was bitter and angry and I was a horrible person to be around. You would not have liked to have known me then, right? And, and I think what was really interesting was when I, you know, when I kind of broke free from the church's rules and said, I'm not going to follow these rules anymore, I want to be truly sexually free, I actually found the opposite happened. I actually then found, because I became a sexually vicious person, I made a habit of lust because pornography or, or um, masturbation or hooking up and those kind of different, different sins, that's all lust and use, right? I actually became a sexual slave. I became a slave to my desires, to my addiction. I was not free to say no. So I think what the world preaches as as, um, sexual freedom, being promiscuous and kind of throwing off the chains, well, I, I tried that. It didn't work. It didn't make me happy. I was emptier and bitter and angry more than I ever was following the church teaching. But um, obviously then I I discovered the uh, theology of the body and Pope John Paul II's writings and he really showed me a third way. He showed me that, you know, to be pure doesn't mean you've got to pretend you don't have any desires, right, and try and annihilate and crush desires. But he also showed me that, you know, true happiness is not about saying, right, whatever I feel, I'm going to do. So I'm just going to become an addict and I'm going to indulge and consume as much of this as I possibly can. Because both extremes do not lead to happiness. He really showed me a third way to be a sexually virtuous person is about ordering all of our sexual desires towards the good of the other person and towards the context of marriage, which is authentic love itself, right? That, that marriage bond between a husband and wife. And suddenly I didn't feel like the rules and restrictions of the church were rules and restrictions anymore. I actually found they were more like the lines that kind of keep you know, the, the roads together. I was like, hang on, it's showing me a boundary that I can stay within that will actually allow me to be free. If there, was no, if there was no lanes on the road, okay, we wouldn't be free to drive 110 kilometres. Why? Because we'd be constantly worried about who's going to crash into us. But the lanes, although they do give us boundaries, they do give us the freedom to drive safer and quicker and we can get anywhere we want faster. Okay, I think that's a very simple example to explain what true sexual freedom is. Now, through a lot of this time, I always felt like, but hang on a second, I've got strong desires for sexual intimacy and for love. So how can I possibly be pure? Because I've got such strong desires. And unfortunately, this is probably the the, um, one misconception I hear about the most. 
particularly from the youth that we do, we do ministry with, is that there's this understanding that strong sexual desire is the same thing as lust, and it's not. Who's the author of our sexuality? Who's the author of our sexual desire? It's God. Our sexual desire is a gift. It's one of the most beautiful gifts God gave us. Why? Because um, a good definition, it's in one of the CDs at the back, I think it's in Sexual Freedom by uh, Christopher West. He says that sexual desire is the power within us to love as God loves. Sexual desire is the power within you to love in the image of God. And I love this is because when we experience sexual desire, what is it that we're experiencing a desire for or to have or to do? Ultimately, it's for love, affection, intimacy, relationship, communion, affirmation, understanding, to be known. Are any of those things bad? They're all awesome things. We need all of them to thrive as human beings, right? We need all of them. So our sexual desire is what actually draws us to those things that we need to be human, that we need to experience love and affirmation and communion. We need all those things as human beings. And God created sexual desire as good and holy. Now, Satan cannot create the same way God can. But if if our sexual desire is the gift God gave us, the power within us to love as God loves, how do you think the devil feels about our, our sexual desires? Right? He hates it. He can't stand out our sexuality. Why? Because it images God on earth more profoundly than any other way we can. So what the devil does is Satan tries to twist our sexual desires up. So rather than us experiencing our sexual desires as a desire to love and to give ourselves away as a gift, he, he tempts us to turn that desire in on itself so we would use it for our own selfish pleasure. So rather than that desire saying, I want to make a gift of myself in love, we see another person and say, I want to use that person as a means to an end for my own sexual pleasure. And so sadly, um, so many of us, me included, feel like our sexual desire is the same thing as lust. Why? Simply because we've made a habit of lusting. And so when we experience a sexual desire, our immediate reaction is to lust. So we think they're the same thing, but they're not. Okay, And once we understand the difference between love and lust, which took me so long to even work out to begin with, how do I know what's love and lust, right? How do I know what's giving and what's, what's taking? But once I started to know the difference between love and lust, that actually made me truly free. I was truly free then. Because you're only truly free when you're free from something so you can give yourself freely to something. So in order to be sexually free, I need to know what does lust look like? How does it pan out in my life? And in what ways am I tempted to lust? Once we identify and see lust for the ugly thing that it is to manipulate and to use a beautiful human person as a means to an end, we no longer desire that in the same way. And so we're free from lust because we don't want to lust. And only once we're free from lust are we truly free to choose to love because we no longer want to lust. Does that make sense? Yeah. So for me, it was about understanding my sexual desire is a good thing, but it was about training myself to be free from lust so I was truly free to make a gift of myself in love. And that's really how I discovered true sexual freedom.
So to be pure isn't about eliminating our desires. Okay, it's about reorientating them, reordering them, okay, to the love that truly satisfies. And so, as um, uh, Christopher West explains it, he says that our sexual desires are like the engines on a spaceship. They're, they're massive, powerful, like it's a rocket, right? It's going to space. These things are huge, right? And that the, the spaceship represents us and the engines represent our sexual desire. When they're ordered in the right direction, they have the power to launch that spaceship into the stars and into outer space, which for this analogy is like marriage, like love. We can launch you know, far beyond anything we know now and in, into this beautiful, intimate relationship with somebody. But what happens if I was to invert those very same rocket engines? If we were to invert those rocket engines and rather than, than us directing that power away from ourselves and towards the person we love, we flip them in on ourselves. What's going to happen to that rocket? It's going to self-destruct. And not only is it going to explode and destroy itself, but this is the key, it destroys anyone it comes in contact with. A sexually vicious person, someone who's made a habit of lust in their life, not only does it destroy them and their ability to be a gift to other people, okay, but it harms anyone that they attempt to have a relationship with. Because a person who only knows how to order their desires towards lust only knows how to use every person they come in contact with. So the, the most perfect spaceship is not one with no engines. It's one with the engines ordered in the right direction, yeah? So that's a good example, I think, for us. So I want to invite you from tonight, and we're going to have some uh, um, purity commitment cards at the end of tonight where we can really make that pledge to live purity. But I want to invite you all tonight, for those of you that are single and you feel called to marriage, I want to invite you to love your future spouse before you meet them. Or if you have already met them, start loving them right? in, a, in a really beautiful, authentic way. Okay, I want to share a few ways that I think, um, firstly, from my own experience, that I think I inverted my rocket engines as a teenager and then in many ways we're, we're always fine-tuning. But um, I, I want to share a few ways I think we can invert our rocket engines which will not really adequately prepare us for the vocation of marriage if we are called to the beautiful vocation of marriage. And it's great to see a handful of other, other vocations in the room, which is amazing. So the first one I would say, and from personal experience, is internet pornography. So to give you a very quick background, okay, I struggled um, as, a, as a, uh, a pretty serious porn addict for about six or seven years. Um, it was something that, um, that really just gripped my life and, and I was really frozen for years in this addiction. Um, to help me break free, I did have to go and see um, psychologists and counsellors to really help me, um, you know, put a bit of an action plan into helping me break free from that addiction. Um, so all of what I'm going to share tonight is really coming from these sessions and from personal experience. I should say, first of all, that pornography is not a male-only issue. Uh, the most recent stats I saw in 2015, uh, one in two men frequently view pornography um, uh, about three or four times a week, okay? And it's now uh, one in, in five women, okay, are viewing pornography on, on, a, on a frequent basis as well. Sadly, many men in relationships are encouraging their girlfriends or their, their spouses um, to bring pornography into their relationship or into their marriage because it may feel dull or boring, but lust is boring. Love is never, love is always exciting. 
It's almost like to try and solve the problem of a fire, we're going to throw more fuel on it to put it out, right? It's like when we, when we bring more lust into a lustful relationship, we're, we're causing more harm than, than good. But I want to share a few ways I think pornography really harms us and our ability to love. The first is the impact it has on our brain, then on our heart, and finally um, on our masculinity and femininity. So I think, first of all, the impact it has on our brain is we become desensitized to not just sex, but to the beauty of the human person. Almost everyone I've spoken to, and my story as well, that anyone who's, who's struggling with internet pornography, very often they start with very basic images, swimsuit magazines, images on the internet, very, very simple, what might seem like very harmless stuff. Within three to six months... Often, they're already viewing very hardcore pornography. Why it was certainly from, in my case, within three months, I couldn't believe what I was already watching from three months after my first exposure to it. What happens to the brain is there are a range of, of different chemical hormones that are released when we're exposed to pornography. And we've got these receptors in our brain which receive the different chemical hormones that are, that are released from watching pornographic images. And the way they work is, is it's like a key in a lock, right? So when the key goes into the lock, it opens the door. In the case of watching pornography, the open door is that feeling of arousal. And there are different, different hormones and, and uh, chemical reactions that make our body experience that sense of arousal. So when we watch pornography, the chemical hormones meet the receptors, it opens up and we experience sexual arousal. Now, over time, certainly someone like me who was watching pornography every day, our brain was not made to be receiving this, this much stimulus from the pornography. Our brain can't handle receiving all this, um, all this arousal. We're not, we're not made for that. So our brain, to, like, to defend itself, okay, like a, a self-defense mechanism, it will actually kill off its own brain receptors in an attempt to reduce how much intake there is. So you imagine, okay, this is me, right? This is my brain. It's taken away some of its brain receptors. I'm still watching as much pornography as before, though. What happens when you, when you stick two keys in one lock or three keys in one lock? Exactly. You can't open the door in the same way, can you? So our brain is no longer able to receive in the same way those chemical hormones coming in from the pornography. So we can't experience the same level of arousal which means our, our brain and our body now, because it very much becomes the, the addiction to porn is a very physical addiction, you feel those symptoms in your body, right? It's placed in a state of constant craving. And so what you were watching a week ago, two weeks ago, is no longer hard enough okay, for you to respond to it. So you, what do you think you need? You need more pornography. You need various forms of pornography to try and meet that same high that you're used to. And this is why most people that will start watching pornography, within a few months, they're already watching very, very hardcore pornography. And this is why five, six years down the track, what I was watching and what most people would be watching is just horrific, really, what we're seeing in the pornographic videos now. And I think when you think about this, right, you're watching, or I was watching, the most perfect bodies in the world. These bodies aren't even real, right? They're photoshopped and, and um, some of these women aren't even real, all right? They're, you know, IT companies are paid millions and millions of dollars to create fake women, right? So think about this. Someone who's watching pornography like I was, we're no longer aroused by the most perfect bodies in the world, 
How do we expect anyone who's watching pornography on a regular basis to be totally captured by their spouse, who is a normal human being, has not been photoshopped or tweaked at all, okay, they are a a real human person, how do we expect that person to be captured by their spouse until death do they part? It's simply impossible. I was getting bored of the most perfect bodies in five seconds flat. How are you meant to be totally captured by one woman until death do you part? It just doesn't happen. The impact it has on our heart, pornography is a school for lust. Nothing will train you in how to use another person better than pornography. You start to view the whole world through this um, pornographic lens. And every single person you see, you see them like, like you're viewing them in, in pornographic films. Every woman I would see, okay, and I've heard multiple other guys say the same thing, every single woman you see, you're immediately looking at them like you would any other porn star in one of the videos you've been watching. It hardwires you, it trains you, there's, there's pathways in the brain that start to think the purpose of a woman or the purpose of a man is simply to meet um, my desires for sexual pleasure, and that's it. And sadly, many people think that marriage is the fulfillment of their pornographic fantasies. It's like, finally, I can actually do this stuff for real. And sadly, I think this mentality is most commonly found amongst churchgoers. Why? Because we're simply trying to obey the rules, right? We're fighting as hard as we can to not sleep with my girlfriend or not sleep with my fiancé. But man, the the second second I get married, finally, I can actually do it. Right, And this mentality, sadly, um, occurs very, very common in people that are viewing pornography on a regular basis. After one talk I gave once, a 28-year-old guy came up to me after the talk and said, look, I've been a porn addict since I was 13. I've been with my fiancé now for the last eight years, and we've been engaged for three years. And he said, look, I I enjoyed your talk and I I understand everything you were saying, but I can't get rid of pornography. There's no way I'll survive without pornography. And as a porn addict myself, I understand that very real struggle. He shared with me that he wouldn't be able to sleep without pornography. He wouldn't be able to function, wouldn't be able to work or eat or sleep, anything. And that's all true, I can honestly say. And I remember I said to him, look, I said, do you realize, though, that if you, don't, if you don't break free from this addiction now, the second you jump into marriage, you're going to use your wife like every other porn star you've been watching in these films. And I said, I can put an internet filter. I've got forms for internet filters here tonight. I said, I can put one on your phone right now. I could end this addiction for you tonight. I asked him, I said, where is the problem coming from? Where do you look at it the most? He goes, look, I don't have a laptop. It's all on my phone. I said, let me help you. Let me put it on tonight. For five minutes, he was just like looking at my hand. He couldn't do it. He was such a slave to the porn he'd been watching for 15 years. He was totally incapable of breaking free from his addiction. And I said, mate, look, please let me help you. And he said, look, I can't give it up now. And this is exactly what he said. He goes, I can't give it up now. He goes, but when I do get married, I'll be able to give it up because I'll have my wife for that. Sadly, that's the, that's, I mean, that's, that's a, a sad case, right? Of someone that truly does feel that marriage is finally going to be the fulfillment of all of his pornographic fantasies. Not one woman in this room, not one woman in the world wants to be the fulfillment of a man's pornographic fantasies. But sadly, this is what pornography does to us. Also, I think it really harms what it means to be male and female. 
huge confusion about what it means to be male and female today. This is totally my opinion, but I really do believe that pornography has helped very much in the confusion of whether we're male or female. Why? St. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, okay, he gives us an, an idea, an example of how a husband should love his wife and how a wife should love her husband. And he frames it as in, um, it's like the marriage between a husband and a wife is like the marriage between Christ and his church. And he says that the husband is called to love his wife as Christ loved his bride, the church. Well, how did he love his bride, the church? He was scourged, spat on, mocked, punched, you know, kicked and whipped all the way up Calvary, carrying a, a very heavy cross, which would have been, I think I recently heard, the cross would have been about 120 kilos, about 600 metres up Calvary, which is a mountain, okay, where he was crucified and hung for three hours before he died. And St. Paul's saying, husbands, if you want to love your wives, that is the example of how to love them. Okay, what do we see there? We see the husband sacrificing his life 100% total self-gift for his beloved. What does pornography do? Pornography totally flips this on its head. Rather than the man sacrificing himself out of love for that woman, it's not the husband that puts himself on the cross out of love and self-sacrifice for the woman. The man puts the woman on the cross. The man sacrifices the woman for his own sexual pleasure. And yes, in pornography, it does go both ways. Both sexes get abused in different ways. But primarily, it's always the woman that seems to suffer the most. And I think this is really contributing to our lack of an understanding of what it means to be male and what it means to be female. Because for a lot of us, our view of sexuality and our view of what it means to be male and female is framed now through a very hypersexualized pornographic culture. Most kids now, the average age for viewing pornography for the first time is 11. That means that kids as young as 6, 7 and 8 are viewing pornography for the first time. Sadly, children are now learning about sex not from parents, not from RE teachers or from priests or from religious. They're learning it from pornography. They're seeing it happen before they even are old enough to process what they're seeing. And so it's helping to shape the confusion around what it means to be male and female. And another thing that I hear all the time is it's not hurting anyone. My addiction is not hurting anyone. It's a private problem. I'm not actually hurting the women you know, directly. If they want to do it, they can do it, but I'm just going to sit back and watch. This could not be further from the truth, okay? 88% of the most watched pornographic films in 2014 involved physical abuse on women, 88%. 49% of the most watched videos involved like um, abuse verbally. The percentage of drug use suicide from from drug overdose or alcohol abuse in the porn industry is absolutely through the roof please don't tell me nobody's getting hurt but i can say from experience as well do you know who it was that suffered the most from my porn addiction my fiance madeline because i took a seven-year porn addiction a habit of lust into my relationship because when we first started to date i was not perfectly free from porn I was certainly I'm still not perfectly free from lust but still that was by far the heaviest cross that we had to deal with in the first year of our of our relationship 
So please, I mean, I say this all the time in the high schools and the youth groups we go to, please, for no other reason, if for no other reason, if you are struggling with pornography, please get an internet filter, do everything you can humanly do to break free, because if for no one else, do it for your future spouse. Do it for the person that you're praying for and that you hope to love one day because nothing was more painful than seeing the hurt in her eyes, hearing about, you know, that struggle that I had and even, you know, when I would fall within our relationship. You know, the good thing about this internet filter is that it's got an accountability function. So I had to put her email into my filter and she would get an email every week to tell her whether or not I'd viewed anything over the MA rating. And they were very, very, very painful, very, very hurtful conversations. But they were good for me. They were really, really good for me. And to be accountable to the person that I love the most um, was very helpful for me. But I'm going to say something to the women in the room that I think is very important. I cannot tell you how instrumental her mercy was in my ability to break free from pornography. Never once was I condemned, insulted, yelled at, made to feel horrible. I was always received with mercy and unconditional love. And that drove me more and more and more to want to break free. Because the only way to break free from a sexual addiction like this is for love. Not because of fear of something, but for love. And that's what I got from Madeline. Um, Give that woman a round of applause. She is a ripper. Okay, the second point is, um, is the way that we dress, okay, so immodesty. This is really, really important. Immodesty is something for men and women, but particularly for women, um, just because women are more kind of tempted through the ears. Guys are very much tempted through their eyes, okay, we're um, extremely visual. But I think every single woman that dresses immodestly, again, I want to affirm that deep down, what is that desire of a woman that dresses immodestly? It's for the very same thing we said at the beginning. It's because she wants to be loved or noticed or affirmed, understood, to be appreciated as beautiful. And they think that if I dress this way, I'm going to get the head looks and the attention that I'm craving. Sadly, we all know though, yes, immodesty does bring a lot of attention, but it's not the attention that every woman longs for deep down. It doesn't satisfy the deepest desires of a woman's heart to be looked that way. Okay, you don't just want to turn a head for five seconds, okay? You want a man to turn his heart to you and love you forever, right? And this became very obvious to me recently, um, or a few years ago now, was that I was at a, a very good girlfriend of mine's um, birthday party, and she was wearing a quite an immodest dress. And I could see the guys, they were, you know, joking about it all night and the way they were looking at her all night. And it really upset me because I really respected and cared for this girl. But I could see the way she had dressed was encouraging these guys to think and talk in, in, a, in a disrespectful way. I approached her a week later and I said, look, if you don't mind, I just want to share with you. Um, I said, I really think that the way you dressed at your 21st birthday party, um, you didn't dress in a way that matched your value. And I said, and I think you encourage people to see you as less than what you were. I'm sorry if that comes across harsh. I said, but I, I care more about telling you that than, you know, just the fear of you maybe, you know, getting angry with me or something. I said, I really, really do want you to know that. She started crying. She said, thank you so much for telling me the truth. She said, I invited five girlfriends over the day of my 21st. We went through my whole wardrobe multiple times. All my friends wanted me to wear that dress 
something in me was saying, I don't want to wear that dress, but they convinced me to wear it. I wore it. I was pulling it up, pulling it down and pulling it up and pulling it down all night. She was like, I was not even comfortable and I knew the way the guys were looking at me. She goes, you know what? I'm going home right now. I'm going to throw that dress out and I'm going to go through my whole wardrobe and anything that I don't think is modest enough is going. A week later, she told me half her wardrobe was in the bin. All right? It was amazing, but she, she agreed with me. She goes, look, I know. She was like, yep, you know, there's this, there's this struggle for the attention and, and, and we want to get the head looks and we want to get the attention, but afterwards it feels so shallow and we know that we want something a lot more. And, you know, some of you may be saying, look, you know what, if I want to dress in a certain way and guys are looking at me lustfully, well, that's their problem. You know, don't make your lustful habits my problem. I just want to dress in a way that, look, that looks nice, Okay. I want to take you into the mind of a man for a second. And I think it's very important, not only do we have a responsibility to be pure ourselves, but we do have a very big responsibility to guard the purity of everyone around us. We have an obligation to do that. If I truly loved every woman that I came in contact with, I would want to guard her purity and guard her heart. And for every woman, every single morning when you get dressed, you should have... At the center of that, am I dressing in a way that is going to firstly uphold my dignity and my value, but am I also going to respect and honor the purity of every other man that sees me today? And I think that's really important. So for guys, when a guy sees skin, when we see you know, these short dresses or low-cut tops, when I see a woman that, that is um, dressed immodestly, what's my first thought? I would really love to get to know her personality. Is that is that true? No, right? When a guy sees skin, we just want to see more of the skin. We get fixated on, on the body and we say, right, well, I want to get to know the body. I remember a guy in high school, there was a girl, um, she was always dressed immodestly. And there was this one guy, he was he was after it all the time, and I'd hear him talking about it at school. And he said, you know what, I just I, I can't wait to get with this girl. I really want to get with this girl. Eventually, one night, she said to him, look, you know what, um, uh, my parents are going to be away, um, you know, come over tonight, we'll hang out tonight. He goes, I went over there, he goes, I was, you know, I knew what was going to happen. He went in there, um, they slept together. She told me this after. She said, he came in, he slept with me. He said, I, I cannot believe how quick he just got up, put his pants on and left. He never even said goodbye. Never even said, and she said, I've never, ever heard from him since. And she started sharing this, her struggles with me, right? And unfortunately, okay, when a woman dresses this way, what she's saying with her body, because our, 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 our bodies speak a language, they express our intentions, and it, it does carry over to, to the people that see us and view us and, and are with us. But when a guy sees a woman dressed immodestly and they see all they see is the body, they think this is the best part of who they are. This is what's on offer. This is what they're putting out to me as this is who I am. And that's very, very sad because you're worth so much more than that. One of the things, again, and I'm going to speak about, about my, my beautiful fiance Maddie, again. One of the things that struck me so hard when I, first, when I first met Madeline was how beautifully she always dressed. And to dress in a modest way doesn't mean you have to look horrible. She always looked beautiful and fashionable. And she always looked modest at the same time. When a man sees a woman dressed modestly, what is our first thought? 
I would love to get to know that woman. I would love to enter the mystery of that woman. There is something mysterious and beautiful and scary because they're so beautiful, right? And again, not only is the woman's purity upheld personally, but it invites a very honourable and respectful response from any man that encounters her. And I can just be honest about, you know, my encounters with girls in high school and stuff. When you encounter a woman that's dressed modestly, and thank you everyone, you all look lovely tonight. Okay, that's great. But when, you, when a man encounters a woman that's dressed modestly, we are immediately encouraged to serve and to be the best that we can possibly be. A woman should not cover her body because it's ugly or dirty. Precisely the opposite. A woman should cover her body because it is sacred and beautiful. We don't veil Christ in the Eucharist because he's dirty or ugly, do we? We veil him, right, because he's so precious and so sacred that the only time we unveil him is when we're ready to get on our knees and worship him. And we don't unveil him until someone is there ready to receive him or to worship him or or to love him. And in the same way, okay, I say to the, the girls we speak to, right, you should never, ever unveil your body to any man unless he is ready to honour your body and to respect your body. And that really should be your husband. Thirdly, we've got to know what sex actually means. What is the meaning of the sexual act? The sexual act is where our bodies act out the words of the wedding vows. So in 10 weeks' time, I'm going to profess the words of the wedding vows to Madeline. It's been exciting. Every talk I give, I have to count down. I I, I remember saying in a year and a half time, I'm going to have to say, you know, it's 10 weeks away. Wow. Okay. But I'm going to have to say, not going to have to say, I can't wait to say, right, that I give myself to you, you know, freely, totally, faithfully and fruitfully. That I'm going to love her for better or worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, all the days of our life, right? And I can't wait to say those words. But, What does the sexual act mean? The sexual act, okay, once the the words of the wedding vows have been professed, it then gives us the right to profess the very same wedding vows but with our bodies. And when the two become one flesh, it gives meaning to those wedding vows. We perfect those wedding vows. But some of us, you know, know, especially now that we're engaged, you know, we'll get kids saying, no, well, you're going to get married in 10 weeks. You know, like, why wouldn't you just do it now, right? And I think there's two main reasons why why we've chosen to save sex for marriage. Firstly is because premarital sex is, is a lie. If I was to sleep with Madeline now, I would be lying to her with my body. Because with my body, I'm saying to her, I'm, I'm loving you freely, totally, faithfully and fruitfully and, you know, and, and in sickness and health and all that stuff, right? But in reality, I have not vowed to love her until death do us part. So there is a disintegration in what my body's saying and what my spirit is saying. And when it comes to the virtue of purity, I can't remember the paragraph in the catechism, but what, what the definition of purity is, it is the integration of body and soul. The body and the soul must always be in harmony. They must always speak the very same language. And that's why if I was to give myself to Madeline now in the flesh but not in the spirit, I'd be speaking a language of a lie because there's a disintegration with my body and my soul. Secondly, it's because is there a difference between sleeping with someone you love and sleeping with your spouse? 
Absolutely, right? I love all of you, okay? I'm not going to marry all, any of you, okay? There's a big difference between someone you love and your spouse. And that, that sacred sexual act is not an expression of love to someone you love. It has meaning. It is, it is the, the body acting out the words of the wedding vows to the person you have vowed to love forever. There is, um, for couples that do not save sex for marriage... Firstly, they've got about an 80% higher chance of of divorce. And it's also about a 60% higher chance of that divorce being as a result of infidelity. And I think this is actually very interesting because if we have the mentality that sex is for someone that I love, then say you're sleeping with your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your fiancé, because I love them, not necessarily and not married to them, but I love them. You get married, 10 years into marriage, things start getting hard. Okay, well, start falling in love with someone else or I start having good, you know, starting to get on with someone else really well. Well then, well, I, I, love, I love them. And sex is not necessarily for my spouse. It's for someone um, that I simply love. There was a girl that I spoke to after a retreat that I gave with Madeline. She said to me, Simon, she had a really tough, tough story. She said, I can see the way, the love that you look, when you look into Madeline's eyes, the way you talk about her in your talk, I can see that you really love her. How is it? Like, how do you know that she loves you for you? And how does she know that, you know, you love her for her? She said, I was involved in, you know, my year nine group of girls, you know, they started really, they started to to pressure me to be, to hook up with guys and sleep around. And I fought them on it for a while, but they eventually said, look, if you don't start sleeping around, you can't hang out with us anymore. She goes, so in year 10, I got drunk and I hooked up with this guy um, and I came back and I told the girls, look, I hooked up with this guy, you know, can I hang around you now? They said, I don't think you get it. We don't want you to just do it once. Like, we want you to embrace this lifestyle. We, we want you to just, you know, hook up and hang out with guys and drink with us and stuff. And she said, you know, I don't really want to do that. So she, she left them. But deep down, there was this war with, you know, in her. She wanted the affirmation of her female friends. So again, in year 11, she went out, she got drunk, she slept with a guy, came back, told the girls. They laughed at her. They said, look, you know, you know you're still trying to win our, our favor. You're still trying to win our honor. You haven't taken on the lifestyle. She said, but after I slept with that guy, all I wanted to know was, was there any, even a second of that time we were together where he actually loved me? And she came back to school that next day and he was laughing at her with a few of his mates saying how poor she was in bed. And she goes, it it, it ripped my heart out. And she said, and then a year later, I still was so desperate to know, even for a moment, did that guy love me at all? She goes, maybe if I sleep with one of his friends, I might see him get like a bit envious, a, a, a bit jealous. So I got drunk again, slept with another one of his friends. She goes, when I came back to school the next week, they were both laughing at me, joking about me, calling me names and stuff. She goes, I, I got eating disorders. She attempted suicide twice, um, had to see school counsellors and all this kind of stuff. Um, very, very sad story. And she said, look, I just want to know, how do I know if someone loves me? And I said, look, I said, I want you to apply the ultimate love test. I said, if anyone is willing to save the gift of sexuality for marriage, you know that they love you for you not just for the sex you can give them or the good times you can give them or the affection they can have from you if they're lonely. If someone is willing to honor your purity and save sex for marriage, you know that they love you. 
okay? And I think, really, I told her, look, I think sexuality is a gift that you give to someone you have vowed to love forever. It is not a test to see if you could love someone forever. The ultimate love test is, is, is someone willing and able to um, save the gift of sexuality uh, until we're married. Um, and finally, I think just to wrap up, I remember being at a year 10 party and there was a girl in a red dress uh, and she told one of my friends, tell Simon that if he wants to hook up tonight, I'm, I'm happy. I had never met this girl before and I said to my friend, look, no, I'm not, I'm not interested. You know, I, I don't even know her. I'm not interested. And uh, he thought I was an idiot for that. And um, then when we came back to school on the following Monday, I'm getting my stuff ready for class and he comes and he punches me in the arm and he goes, mate, you're, you're an idiot. I can't believe, you know, someone wanted to hook up with you and, and, and you turned it down. What's wrong with you? And I said, look, you know what? I said, I would really love, you know, for my first kiss to be with someone that I actually love. I don't know. I'm not too keen on this idea of kissing someone I don't even know. And he goes, look, mate, you've got to get this silly idea out of your head that, you know, there's going to be this some person that you're going to fall in love with one day and, you know, you've waited for her and she's waited for you. So this is a fantasy that's never going to come true. And I said, look, do you remember the first time you ever kissed a girl? And he goes, oh, yeah, I can remember. I can remember, you know, remember who she was, her name, where we were and all this stuff. And he really kind of blustered. All right, that's enough. Thank you. And I said, now, can you remember the second kiss? No, I was drunk. Can you remember the third? No, I was drunk. No, everything else is a blur after that. Lost count. I said, how awesome would it be if that first girl that you could clearly tell me all this stuff about, right, about exactly what happened and where you were and et cetera, right? How awesome would that be if that first kiss was with the woman that you were going to love forever, the woman that you were going to marry, who is your best friend now? Wouldn't that be beautiful to be able to say that? And he kind of stopped for a second and he thought about it and he goes, yeah, but you know, that's never going to happen anyway. And I said, well, look, the reason why I didn't hook up with that girl you know, on Friday night is because deep down somewhere I would like to think that there was a woman that I'm going to marry one day who would have done the same for me. I would love to be able to save myself for the woman I'm going to marry in the hope that she would save herself for me. And I said, at the end of the day, look, if, if even if she didn't save herself for me, at the end of the day, I'm only in control of my actions. I cannot, I, I can't impact what she's doing now. I don't even know who she is. But love is all about what can I give to her. And I can honestly say I've been very, very blessed that we're both 25 years old now. And it was so exciting to, to know and to discover. And yes, we both made mistakes in the past, of course. Um, but on the whole, it's beautiful that we've been able to you know, we're 25 year old, years old, we're both virgins, and we're going to be able to give ourselves to each other, you know, without giving ourselves to anyone else in 10 weeks on our wedding night. And so some of you may be saying, well, is it possible? Is this kind of love possible? You know, what if there's no one out there as beautiful as her? And I would understand that if you said that, <laughs> okay? But, um, you know, how, how can we find someone that, that thinks like this? And I think, firstly, we very, very quick, very quick, Okay. Three very, very quick things. We all have to, in our own way, we have to be willing to start over. We have to be willing to forgive ourselves of anything that we've done. I certainly had the furthest thing from a perfectly pure past. There were many things that I had to start over from. There were many things that I firstly had to learn to ask God for forgiveness for, but I also had to learn to forgive myself. 
because I really, you know, there's a. I think God is constantly calling you to a to a more uh, to a, a more hopeful future. He wants something more for you. He's encouraging you to don't don't sit in the past. You know, don't let your past determine your future. You know, you're you're worthy of true love. Pursue it from today. Whereas Satan, every time you think, oh, maybe I'm worth that. You know, maybe maybe I can get married one day and have an awesome marriage. What what does what does Satan do? How could you possibly think you're worth that? Don't you have you already forgotten what you did last week? Have you already forgotten what you did when you were 15? He keeps us in the past. Okay, and when we're stuck in the past, it's impossible for us to make a better future. So I want to encourage you, please, like I had to do multiple, multiple times, sometimes a few times a week, is take all of our sin, all of our baggage, and just dump it at the foot of the cross. Take it to the sacrament of confession. The sacrament of confession and the Eucharist literally have saved my life. I don't know how God just kept giving me the grace to go back to confession. Thank God. But it really did save my life. As Pope Francis says, you know, it's not God that tires of forgiving us. It's we who tire of asking him forgiveness. We've got to go back and over and over and over again. And after I started to do this and I started to experience a bit, bit more freedom, um, I went on a retreat and I wrote out my standards for the woman that I wanted to marry. Boy, I didn't know who I was going to end up with, eh? And I wrote down 60 qualities I wanted in a future wife. I said, God... I want, this is the woman that I want, right? I said, I, I said, I want to know, I want to know what kind of woman uh, I'm looking for. Please help me to find someone like this. And it was almost the instant those words left my mouth, I felt like he slapped me over the head and he was like, right, if this is the kind of woman you think you deserve, then she deserves someone just as good. So rather than you, you know, praying for this perfect woman who, um, you know, who you want to come, why don't you start focusing on, on becoming the perfect spouse for her? So you become this list. Thank you very much, right? And so I had this list and I was like, right, wow, now I've got to live up to this. But it was awesome because it was something that I was constantly being able to refer to to help me to become the best possible person I could be for my future wife that I would not know. The beautiful thing was that when I actually met Madeline, before I proposed to her and I went through the list again, I had to add another 83 qualities. She had so much more than I'd even asked for, right? So it's amazing. When we actually pray for things, okay? Now, I remember there were things I was going to write. I was like, God, there's no way you're going to give me that. Like, there can't be someone out there with this virtue and this quality. And I was like, but I just heard this voice. No, 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 shoot. Like, aim high. Like, set your standards high. I have got someone amazing in store for you. And he did. He, he blessed me with someone uh, far better than I even prayed for. Secondly is we've got to actually pray for our future vocation every day. Clearly not all of us are called to marriage, right, which is awesome, right? Uh, but we've got to pray every day for our future vocation, okay? And if, and if that's to marriage, you know, we're praying for our future spouse. Um, I wrote a prayer out myself when I was 12 years old. My dad always told me, pray for your future spouse every night. And since I was 12, so it's been like 15 years, like 13 years, um, I've been praying every day for my future wife. We've got some free rosaries and, and miraculous medals for everyone tonight. They've already been blessed uh, and they're free. If you'd like to make a donation, you can. All the donations would go towards helping us give these away for free at the high schools we speak to. But um, I encourage you to... My life changed when I put on this miraculous medal. And you just have to ask the sisters for that. Um, but honestly, consecrating yourself to Mary 
my purity just transformed. Finally, I was able to experience the freedom I've been hoping and praying for. And uh, please take a rosary and even just three Hail Marys every morning for your purity and for the purity of your future spouse or for the, um, for the, for the success of your, your future vocation. And then it's good to have little things that motivate you to live out purity. So we've got little um, purity commitment cards here. There is also for free at the back. Everyone can take one of them. It's something you can just, you know, it's, this doesn't focus on what you did yesterday or last year. It's what do you want to do from, from now? Where are we going from here? You can sign it and date it. Um, that, that's an awesome thing. I wear a purity ring. This has been something else. It's been a great, a great reminder for me. Uh, write love letters to your future spouse. It helps you realize they're real. You're not writing a letter to someone that doesn't, that doesn't exist, right? It helps you with your faith to keep focused. And also, I started doing something called a rose offering about four years ago where on the first Saturday of every month, which is our, our, ladies, our ladies' day, I would take a, a red, white, and yellow rose to symbolize love, purity, and friendship. And I would give it to Our Lady and, um, and say a rosary and the prayer and ask her, please help keep me pure this month and um, keep my future spouse pure. Uh, on our first date, I was already so sure I was going to marry this girl. We actually did the rose offering together. My 21st rose offering was our first date. We weaved that into the day. We uh, just, just a few weeks ago, we did the 56th rose offering together, right? And that, that's been a beautiful thing. Now it's become something we do as a couple. And um, about five, four years ago, the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen gave me a purity card. And she said, well, you know, you should sign that and date it and then give it to your spouse on your wedding day. And um, I'm going to give it back to the same person that gave me mine, which is fun. But it was actually Maddie that gave me my purity card. Um, so... The best gift we've got for you, you know, obviously um, we'll be praying for all of you and for your purity and your vocation forever. So pray that we live long lives, okay? Because <laughs> the longer we live, the more prayers you get. Um, I hope, hope we can hang out and chat tonight. So thank you very much. That was Simon Carrington with Finding the Love That Satisfies from the Restore Weekend in Hobart, Tasmania. And for more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.